Heavenly Father, we know that you're in charge of history. You're in charge of the past. You're in charge of the present. You're in charge of the future. And Lord, we know that everything that you've purposed, everything that you've ordained, all that you desire to accomplish, you will accomplish. Lord, we know what the scripture says, that it's your will that men everywhere repent of their sins and turn to the Lord Jesus as Savior. That you've ordered the times and the seasons, governments and civilizations. You've outlined all of human history for a specific purpose. You've placed people in strategic circumstances for a specific purpose. You've ordered and ordained everything for the specific purpose that in Jesus Christ you would be glorified. Lord, we know that the scriptures say that that if Jesus would be lifted up, all men would be drawn to him. And so, Lord, we pray that we could lift up Jesus, point people to Jesus, remind people about Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to begin with the first eight verses of Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, then northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him. Nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will, and he became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth and without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with a furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him attacked the ram and broke his two horns and there was no power in the ram to withstand him but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand therefore the male goat grew very great but when he became strong the large horn was broken And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Our study in chapter 8 is going to take some interesting twists and turns. We will study history and prophecy. Now remember, history is the meaning of the past. And prophecy is 
is the meaning of the future. History is that which has been written in the past. And we might think of prophecy as history written in the past, but that speaks of the future. And so we're going to begin an intense scrutiny of the second vision of Daniel. So now we come to another great division in the book of Daniel. Our focus is going to shift from the past nations that emerge and surround Israel, and we're going to be given a glimpse of the history of Israel. The first seven chapters dealt with history. The final chapters, 8 through 12, will deal with prophecy. In the first seven chapters, it was the unfolding of human history, and now Daniel's focus and the Lord's focus, if you will, the Holy Spirit's focus in the book is going to now turn its attention towards God's dealing with the land of Canaan, with the promised land, with what the Bible calls the glorious land, the exalted land, the beautiful land. In the Hebrew, it's called Eretz, or the land. And when Daniel wrote these words, remember, remember, I need you to go back in time with me just for a moment. As Daniel has been writing these words, when he writes the words, the capital of Jerusalem is a pile of rubble. The nation state of Israel and Judah has ceased to exist. The exiles in Babylon have lived their lives in bondage and slavery and subjugation. And the idea of Israel is gone. Moses and the liberation of the children of Israel, history. Occupation of the land, history. The time of the judges, history. The glorious time of King David and Solomon, the divided kingdom, history. The glory and the tragedy of Israel was filled their hearts and and for, again, For the handful of exiles who held on to the promise that God would restore and rebuild the nation for the vast majority of the children of Israel who found themselves in bondage, it was just a dream. Remember, even after Babylon is conquered by the Medes and the Persians, remember when permission is eventually granted by the Persian king to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, less than 50,000 people will leave Babylon and head back for the land with the glorious undertaking that God's promises and prophecies will be fulfilled. But they will be. And so when Daniel receives this vision, his people are gripped with doubt and they are gripped with fear and they are gripped with uncertainty. There's a sense of despair and hopelessness that grips their hearts. Sound familiar? As people think about our future and the future of the world. But I need to tell you this and you need to understand it. I've carefully read the Bible. And as I've carefully read the Bible, not once, not twice, not three times, but many, many times, God's dealing with the nations, whether it is Egypt, whether it is Babylon, whether it is Assyria, whether it is 
the Medes and the Persians, no, no matter where you go, whether it's the Greeks or the Romans, no matter where you look in the Bible, God's dealings with the nations is always in proportion to Israel. And since the focus is now going to shift and the Bible's preeminent focus is on Egypt's dealing with Israel, Babylon's dealing with Israel, Greece's dealing with Israel, Romans dealing with Israel. We have every reason to believe that the world and the future as it unfolds is going to be from God's perspective in direct proportion to how the world deals with Israel. God has unfinished business when Daniel was writing this. The Messiah has yet to come. These visions, these prophecies are not going to simply provide hope, but they're going to provide certainty that Israel will be rebuilt. Israel will endure as a nation until all of God's promises come true. And when Daniel is given the vision, it's proof positive that God's plan for Israel will stretch from the time of the prophet's writing as it pushes forward into the time that's going to constitute the first coming of Jesus. But it's going to go beyond the death and the resurrection of Jesus and it's going to push further and further in our study of Daniel till we come right to the terminus, the end point of human history. And God's promise that Israel will have a role, place, even to the end. I also want you to note something else. Daniel's writing shifts from chapter 2 all the way to the end of chapter 8, beginning in chapter 8, verse 1, which we have just read. Now Daniel's script changes from Aramaic, the language of the Gentiles, to Hebrew, the language of the Jews. Why is that? Because from chapter 8, verse 1, all the way to chapter 12, to the end of the chapter, God carefully recorded these prophecies so that the prophecies, now listen carefully, would be read and understood. I'm going to go one step further. That the prophecy would not only be read and understood, but that the prophecy would be believed and followed. And those who know the Lord, and those who trust the Lord, and those who believe and follow the Lord will get hope. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to examine Daniel's vision of the ram, the goat, the little horn, which is a prophecy about the Greeks' conquest of the Medes and the Persians. And then later in the chapter of chapter 8, we're going to talk about the horrible persecution of a type and a picture of the Antichrist, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And then we're going to study Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks, which is a part and a picture of God, a prayer and Bible study. And then in chapter 10 and chapter 11, we're going to be presented with more prophecies, more timelines. We're going to be be given a picture of spiritual forces as they collide together and oppose the believer. And finally, in chapters 11 and 12, we're going to see prophecies of conflict. 
prophecies of war, prophecies of suffering, prophecies of what the Bible calls the end. So we begin our study with how Daniel receives this second vision. Then the meaning or the revelation of the second vision. And then the resolution of the second vision. So we begin with how he receives it. Look at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. To me, Daniel. After the one that appeared to me the first time. Daniel has received a first vision. Now he receives a second vision. The first vision took place in the night. The second vision takes place while he's wide awake during the day. Now let's orient ourselves in the prophecy of Daniel and in the book of Daniel just for a moment. Remember what I said earlier, chapters 1 through 6 deal with history. Chapters 7 through 12 deal with prophecy. Here, the vision in the 8th chapter is taking place chronologically between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5, between the collapse of the Babylonian Empire and the emergence of the Mede and the Persian Empire. And so, the reason why this is important is that the vision that you're reading now and that we're talking about now that Daniel receives is going to be necessary for him to interpret the handwriting on the wall. Remember, we've already talked about that during the reign of Belshazzar. And so, the second visitation takes place sometime between 550 and 549 B.C. Now you have to understand, at this point in Daniel's life, he's between the ages of 66 and 67. Two years have gone by since the vision in chapter 7. The third year of Belshazzar's reign, we know from historical records, is between 550 and 549. The fall of Babylon takes place October 12th, 539 B.C., or about 12 years before the fall of Babylon. So when he writes these words and he receives this vision, the fall, the collapse of the Babylonian Empire is some 12 years away. And so in verse 2, it says, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Now, it's unclear whether Daniel is literally in Shushan or whether he's transported by vision to the city of Shushan. And I'm going to argue that like Ezekiel, Daniel is lifted up and taken to this foreign place. That in this vision and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is placed in the future capital between the collapse of the Babylonian Empire and the emergence of the Medes and the Persians. He's going to be able to see from a new perspective. And this is the city of the palace or the citadel. Now, in Daniel's time, Shushan was on the outskirts of the Babylonian Empire. 
and its significance is debated. Some people say it played no role in Babylonian history. Others say, no, it played a significant role because it's on the border between the, the, where the sovereign state of Babylon begins and ends. So the place will become a, a, a great deal of significance during the reign of the Medes and the Persians. Another name for Shushan is Susa. Now again, to orient it geographically, it's a city some 230 miles east of Babylon. It's 120 miles north of the Persian Gulf in the area that you and I would call Iran. This would later become the capital of Persia. For those of you who know and love the Bible, this is the place where Darius will be king and Esther will be the queen. This is the place where Nehemiah will serve the Persian king. And this is the place where he will write the book of Nehemiah. Also, this is the place in 1901 where a group of scholars will dig up the code of Hammurabi. And so, the capital is Elam. The Persian king Darius I establishes his capital there in 521. The river Ulai is really not really much of a river. It's more of a canal that was dug in, from the Tigris in order to provide water for the capital. And so we see how he receives the second vision. And now we'll understand a little bit about the revelation of that vision. Look in verse 3. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now again, for those of you who love to read the Bible, and you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you read the book of Revelation, and you say, dude, what's up with the animals? Why does the Bible always use such weird images and why is it like, you know, you've talked about the History Channel and the Future Channel, and now it's Animal Planet. How's anybody supposed to understand what any of this stuff means? Well, I want to point out to you, we still use animals as figures of speech, don't we? We talk about a person being wise as an owl. Do you know why we talk about people being wise as an owl? Because Athena, who was the goddess of wisdom, had as her familiar an owl. We say that a person eats like a horse. We won't mention any names. We speak of people being chicken. And of course, if you call a person a turkey, what exactly are you saying? My history teacher had a memory like an elephant. My football coach was dumb as an ox. I remember a former famous president who was sly as a fox. And how many of you ever used the expression, my husband is as stubborn as a... Yeah, see? You get it. 
that the, the animals became types and pictures, and the identity of the ram is literally explained in verse 20. It says, the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And so the Bible doesn't leave it to guesswork. These are the kingdoms of the Medes and the Persians, and the two horns are high, but one is higher than the other. And remember, this speaks, uh, it's a prophecy of ascendancy and power. The, the Medes came first, the Persians came second, and so the Medes were at a particular point, and the Persians were at a particular point, and then the Persians far exceeded the Medes, and later, literally, the Persian Empire swallowed and absorbed the Median Empire. And so we have a, a picture of the ram, and we have a picture of the goat. But again, remember what I'm trying to remind you. The focus of Daniel's prophecy is now zeroing in on Daniel, the people of Daniel, the Jewish people. So it begins with a ram. It continues with a goat. Now, I want to remind you, according to Greek legend, the first colony of Greece was established by an oracle. And the oracle sent a goat as a guide to build a city in an unknown place. And the goat came to that region that you and I call Greece. And out of thanks for the goat leading them to the right direction, the city was built. And the city was called Ajai, which is the Greek word for goat. The sea that separates Asia Minor, the Assyrians and the Sidonians, the people of Asia Minor from this landmass came to be called the Aegean Sea, which is the Goat Sea. By the way, Aegea was the capital of Alexander's home and the place where he was born. And so in verse 4 it says, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will, and he became great. Now, we've talked about a ram. We've talked about a goat. We know that the goat is the people of Greece. Look at verse 21. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. It's pretty simple, isn't it? You don't have to you really don't have to be all that smart to figure out what it's saying. The Bible's telling us exactly who it is. So when it talks about the ram coming eastward, oh the ram comes from the east. The reason why we know that is look at the text itself. I saw the ram pushing read it for yourself. What does it say? Westward. If you're pushing westward, what direction are you? East. You come from the east and you begin to push west. And again, that's exactly the way the Medes and the Persians begin to unfold. This is the way that they conquered their empire, which included Syria to the west, Armenia to the north, Egypt to the south. As a matter of fact, Marcellinus, who was a 4th century historian who was just after one of the most famous historians, Herodotus, wrote that the Persian ruler... When he was leading his armies, he bore on his head a ram's skull. 
as he stood in front of the army. Now think about that for just a moment. The king of Persia is wearing a helmet that looks like a ram. Now again, if you're watching NFL and the people are wearing a ram's helmet, what team are they? Yeah, it's the Rams. It's St. Louis. And if you're old like me, before it was St. Louis, it was L.A. That's exactly right. And so in the vision, you see the king wearing the head of the ram. And the Persian army got as far as the shores of Greece. They moved southward. They conquered Egypt. They went into the interior as far as Ethiopia. And the no army, could, no nation could withstand the king of Persia. The king did quite literally as he pleased. And I've already told you that the Persian Empire became the largest land mass empire with the possible exception, as someone has pointed out to me, of the Mongols. But the largest empire in all of human history. And then in verse 5 it says, And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Now again, like I already said, the goat represents Greece. And the notable horn is Alexander the Great. In chapter 7, this is a reference to the leopard. Chapter 7, verse 6, the belly of brass. If we go all the way back to the beginning of Daniel's prophecy. Now, Alexander's father was a man named Philip II of Macedon. And he had the great fortune of discovering one of the greatest gold and silver mines in the history of that particular area. And he became fantastically wealthy. Philip provided Alexander with the best education possible. Many of you are familiar with Socrates. Socrates had a student named Plato. Plato had a student named Aristotle. Aristotle had a student named Alexander the Great. And he goes and he conquers the world. Now, tragically, Philip was murdered when Alexander turned 19 years of age. And Alexander's motives, according to historians anyway, were in part to, to avenge the exploits of the Persians. Now, in verse 6, it says, Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And in verse 7, And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Now that expression, he was moved with rage, speaks of the bitter animosity between the Greeks and the Persians. For those of you who have ever seen the movie uh, 300, which is a, a fictitious account of the Battle of Thermopylae, you'll remember that the Persian hordes come. They stand on the shores of Greece, and they're, they're, they're getting ready to, to consume the countryside, and the Spartans at Thermopylae defend the peninsula. That's what creates the rage. There was a bitter, bitter anger and a bitter, bitter animosity that arose from the Greeks. Alexander never forgot it and never forgave it. And so when he emerges in power, 
he beats them like a drum. In Granicus in 334 B.C., in Isis in 333 B.C., in Arabella in 331 B.C., his power was overwhelming. Alexander took 35,000 troops into Asia Minor, and when he eventually confronts the Persian army, he has 35,000 men, and the Persians have 350,000 men. Now again, you're not a Bible scholar and you have no idea that God is in control. 350,000 to 35,000. Who do you think is going to win? But God has a plan. God has a purpose. God's plans and purposes and future are going to unfold according to God's plans and God's purposes. And by the way, there's an interesting little historical footnote. When Alexander goes across the Hellespont, occupies what we would call Asia Minor, goes down to what you and I would call Israel, and goes is marching just outside of Jerusalem. According to Josephus, the ancient historian, Alexander was met outside of Jerusalem by Jadua, who was Israel's high priest at the time. And the high priest came out, and he met Alexander, and he was outfitted in his royal robes that he would wear when he would offer the sacrifice, his crown, the breastplate. He, he meets Alexander and he shows the Greek conqueror the scroll of Daniel. He opens it up to Daniel chapter 8 and he begins to read the verses that I've just read to you. According to Josephus, Alexander prostrated himself in the dirt and he worshipped the God of the man who wrote the scroll and he spared Jerusalem. Now it's also worth noting that Alexander's mother, Olympia, who was Philip's wife, proceeded to tell the story that she was impregnated by a talking serpent god and that Philip was in fact, not Alexander's father. And Alexander believed the story. Olympia told him that he was a descendant of the gods, of Hercules and Achilles. And so we see this series of remarkable prophecies. Now I want you to count them for yourself. The first prophecy has to do with the manner of the world conquest that was accomplished by the Greeks. When the goat moves west, he begins to cover the earth, and he does it so rapidly that it seems as if his feet never touch the ground. Now, remember, we're talking about an age in which there aren't trains, there aren't planes. Alexander does, in 12 years, what no one else has ever done. He conquers the known world. When Alexander's armies came, they moved so rapidly that you hardly had time to catch your breath. He manages to capture and subjugate all of Asia, all of Assyria, all of Babylon, all of North Africa, all of Iraq, Iran. And he continues to march until he comes to the very edge of the then known world in India. Disheartened and, and completely exhausted. The Greeks return from India. 
and Daniel marches back to Babylon. The Greeks had setbacks. But do you realize how many battles did Alexander's armies lose? Who can guess? None. He never lost a single major battle. And the Lord God used Daniel to predict that it would happen that way. Another aspect of the prophecy is the reputation of the king. Later in verse 21, look what it says when you go to the middle of the passage, verse 21, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Look what it says. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Now, clearly, Philip I is a king way before Alexander. Philip II is a king way before Alexander. Why is Alexander called the first king? Because he's the first king of the world empire. He is the first emperor of the world empire. And he is that king. Now, like I said, Olympia teaches Alexander that he's a descendant of Achilles and Hercules. His father was rich and great. Philip told his son Alexander, seek out a kingdom worthy of yourself. Now again, we see a historical application. The small horn comes from a very small kingdom. And Philip even says this to his son, Macedonia is too small for you. And so Alexander envisions a world where everyone loves the Greek language and the Greek culture. Remember what I said to you? He takes 35,000 of his troops. He sweeps across the world in less than 13 years. And of those 35,000 troops, 10,000 of his soldiers take brides of Eastern women. And so what Alexander winds up doing is he unites the East and the West for the first time, and now Greek language and Greek culture is going to determine the future. So, the third prophecy has to do with the ruin of the Medo-Persian Empire. God tells Daniel that this notable horn, the great king, is going to come to power. He's going to threaten, and then he's going to destroy the Medes and the Persians, and that's exactly what he does. Alexander defeats the Persian army under Darius III. He frees all the Greek cities in Asia Minor that the Persians used to occupy. He continues to sweep south. He captures Egypt. He captures Tyre. He captures Gaza. He destroys Tyre, which becomes the fulfillment of the prophecy in Ezekiel. And this time, he engages the Persian army and does not utterly destroy them. He returns the second time, engages the army, and completely wipes them out. The fourth prophecy speaks of the death of the notable king. When Alexander defeats the Persian armies, like I said, he marches east. He captures the Persian strongholds. He sacks cities. He proceeds into India. He returns from India. And at this time, scholars say that he began to envision himself as a deity. He demanded that certain of his troops in certain of the provinces begin to worship him. And because his troops come from Macedonia, and because he himself 
himself has been educated by the Greeks, he understands and his people who are following him understand that he is not a god. But he demands worship. His army, tired, spent, then returns to Babylon where Alexander dies at the age of 33 on June 13th, 323 B.C. He asks for his throne to be brought to him. He sits on the throne and everyone understands that he's dying from a kind of a a debauched state of pneumonia. And as, as, as his lungs begin to fill with fluid, the generals say to him, because he has no heir, who shall we give the kingdom to? And he says, give it to the strong. And the glory and the power of the great horn is broken in a moment. He dies at age 33. In verse 8, look what it says. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And that's exactly how it happened. And in place of it, four notable ones came up. The four winds of heaven. And again, as the prophecy unfolds, it has to do with the organization, or rather, the reorganization of Alexander's empire. It will be given to four notable ones. It says, towards the four winds of heaven. And literally, when Alexander died, the empire was divided by the four generals, Cassander and later Antipater, the western division of Greece and Athens, Lysimachus, who was his personal bodyguard, the northern area of Thrace, of what you and I would call the Balkan Peninsula and Asia Minor. Seleucus I Nicanor took the eastern section, including later, later, Palestine and Syria, and Babylon. And then fourth, Ptolemy the first Soter takes the southern part of Egypt and occupies all of the area that was formerly ceded to the Medes and the Persians all the way down to Ethiopia. And so, north, south, east, west, just as the Bible predicted, hundreds of years before it happened. Now this is interesting because the Lord God would later use the Greek culture and the Greek language. Koine Greek would become the language of art and culture and literature and the Greek would become what constituted the formulation of our New Testament. And after the collapse of the Greek Empire and then the eventual emergence of the Roman Empire, Roman law would bring peace and roads and the gospel would emerge at a time both of persecution and then later an unfolding of peace. But make no mistake about it, there's a reason why the Greek New Testament is Greek and not Akkadian. Remember in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul writes... That in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive an adoption as sons. The Bible is very, very clear that the unfolding of human history, the rising up and the falling down of civilization and the appointment of leaders are exactly according to His sovereign purposes. And Daniel's reaction to the prophecy is overwhelming. 
It's not simply emotional. It's not simply psychologically. Psychological. Daniel is filled with this sense of overwhelming exhaustion. And you'll remember earlier in the book of Daniel, when people had dreams, visions, circumstances, he was the one who would interpret the dream and the vision and the circumstance. He himself is overwhelmed. And later on in Daniel chapter 8, he's going to ask an angel to help him understand what it is that he's reading. So how do we respond? For many people, when Daniel receives this vision, remember what I said, he's mentally, emotionally, psychologically undone. It's interesting to me, when people read the prophecy, I've actually met people who have said, so? And I go, what? you saying? Do you know how many books in all of human history record what's real in advance? Does the Book of Mormon record prophecy? Does the Quran record prophecy? Do the Upanishads record prophecy? I said, look, look, look. And some people go, well, Clearly, Daniel didn't write this book. Or if he did write this chapter, it had to have been inserted centuries after the fact Jewish scholars inserted these stories in order to help pass the time. Scholars call this ex eventu, or this was put in after the fact. Did a prophet named Daniel write this book? Hundreds of years before the events ever occurred. What do you think the answer is? The answer is yes. It wasn't snuck in. And you know what is most disturbing to the critic? They go, how do we know even a guy named Daniel exists? Read Ezekiel chapter 14. A contemporary writes about him. Well, how do we know that they didn't write this and sneak it in? Ptolemy the second, when he translates the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek language, the book of Daniel is included in 225 B.C. In 331 B.C., this scroll, according to Josephus, is placed into the hands of the high priest and read to Alexander the Great when he's getting ready to conquer the city. In the 5th century, there's a record. In the 4th century, there's a record. In the 3rd century, there's a record. In the 2nd century, there's a record. And, of course, the most compelling evidence, at least from my perspective, is Jesus himself, who in the book of Daniel speaks of, book of Matthew, he speaks of, let him who has ears listen and understand what Daniel the prophet has to say. Do you realize that Jesus calls Daniel the prophet? By the way, is Jesus right or is Jesus wrong? How could Jesus be right about so many things and wrong about this little faux pas of history? The events of the prophecy unfold exactly as predicted. And the events of a final global world, the events of a coming Antichrist, which have not yet occurred, will occur. Charles Ross Weed wrote a poem contrasting and, and comparing the Lord Jesus and Alexander the Great. Alexander lived and died for himself. 
died on a throne, shed a whole world's blood, made all men slaves, is dead forever. Jesus lived and died for you. He died on a cross. Instead of shedding a whole world's blood, he shed his blood. Instead of making all men slaves, he became a slave so that everyone could be free. Alexander is dead forever. Jesus Christ. Go ahead and say it. He's alive, not just now. He's alive forever. Do you remember what I said to you? Daniel's prophecy will push through human history. It will push through the 4th century and the 3rd century and the 2nd century and the 1st century until the coming of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the, the, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And then Daniel's prophecy will begin to unfold at a future time that is still future, not only for Daniel, but for you and for me. In the end, a ruler will come who will trample Daniel's people underfoot. Later, we'll have an explanation of the vision. And in verse 17, we'll talk about the end times. In verse 19, we'll talk about God's wrath and tribulation. When we get together again next week, we're going to pay close attention to the little horn, the history of Antiochus Epiphanes, who becomes the future type of this world ruler. And we're going to explore the relationship between Antiochus Epiphanes in the past and then compare that with Antichrist in the future. Because in Antiochus, we're given a glimpse, not just of the nature and not just the character of the Antichrist in the future. But like Antichrist, or like Antiochus Epiphanes, the future Antichrist will be dramatic in appearance, destined for evil, dynamic in leadership, demonic in power, destructive in reign, wicked in practice. He'll deify himself. He'll disguise his cruelty with promises of peace. And the way he dies, according to the Bible... He'll be destroyed. But the Bible says he won't be destroyed by a human being. What in the world could it mean? Stay tuned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we know that history itself, down to exacting detail, has been foretold in the past. The life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection described in excruciatingly minute and specific detail the unfolding future, a world government, a world leader, collision of civilization and then a collapse of human civilization and the rule of Jesus Christ. Inevitable? Certain? Absolutely. Lord, we know that every single promise you've ever made, you've kept. And 
every single prophecy that has come to pass. And every single prophecy yet to come to pass will occur in exacting, specific, mind-blowing detail. Lord, we, we know that we can trust the Bible because you wrote it. We know that we can trust the future because you know it. In Jesus' name.